Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. What does a title like Superintendent of Wellbeing at Google actually mean? For Bill Duane, it was a chance to take the mindfulness practices that helped him deal with his own anger and grief and share them in a sustainable way. In this episode of Hack the Process, Bill will explain how the practical value of meditation overcame the objections of his rational mind, what processes helped him develop a scalable training program at Google, and why he decided to leave the company after 12 years to create space for new opportunities. So today I'm talking with Bill Duane, recently retired from Google after a 12-year career where he left as superintendent of well-being. Duane, how are you doing today? Bill, how are you doing today? <laughs> good, good. You're not the first person to make that error. It's terrible. I actually have four first names. It's William Matthew James Duane for the full Irish Catholic name onslaught. Oh, man, I, I was sure I was not going to trip up on that, and I was watching myself <laughs> for it, and there it was. <laughs> it's what you pay attention to. That's what you get. Yeah, exactly. So that title, Superintendent of Wellbeing at Google, I know you've just recently left that job, but it begs the question, how do you explain to people what you were doing? The long and short of it is to create programs and structures that enable sustainable high performance. So it's this mixture, it's this intersection of getting a lot of stuff done while being happy, or maybe while being satisfied or flourishing. It's completely possible to get a lot of stuff done and be miserable. I have some deep expertise sort of in, in that area. But there's also this sweet spot where you can be highly effective and have this sense of acting in accordance with your values, getting a lot of stuff done, flourishing. So then the question is, is then what makes that true? And then how do you create programs that are more likely to create that at scale? And how do you do that inside of an organization, inside of a, a huge company like Google as well? Because that's not the sort of thing that you normally think of a company focusing on. Yeah, well, when you think about this question of what's important, you know, at Google or a company like Google, people have many options. And finding the right people who can do a good job is one of the key differentiators of success. And I think when we, when we look at our lives and say what's important in our lives, many times it's something that's beyond sort of the job description. So there's this notion of that if you really want key people around and having them operating at their best, there's this sort of medium and long-term strategy that becomes important. And being the best place to work is more than ball pits or, you know, whimsical furniture or anything like that. It's this real dialogue about what's important in your life. And of course, that changes over time and as your circumstances change. But I think there's generally this agreement at Google that this is important for getting things done over the medium and long term. Yeah, that kind of speaks to the question of how much of your life is the place that you work. And I know that in Silicon Valley, it tends to take over a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the shadow side of really caring about what you do, right? So, you know, a lot of the research on engagement is like engagement is awesome. We can also over-index on engagement where we start to get difficulty in separating from work, right? 
the relationship between performance and using as a proxy for engagement, there's research that shows that if you psychologically detach from work, what's the relationship to how much you get done? So if you psychologically detach from work a lot, maybe even most of the time, you don't get much done. And the less you psychologically detach, the more your performance improves, but then it starts becoming negative, right? Because the cognitive faculties that are necessary begin to fade, which makes you have the fight or flight parts of your brain take over, which are not so good at rational, cognitive, innovative, interpersonal work. So the relationship is curvilinear. On the one side, if you detach from work too little, we'll call this the Lebowski end of the curve. <laughs> um, sort of very pleasant, but not necessarily the person you would want as a colleague. I would want to hang out with the dude. I would not want to rely on the dude for a deliverable. And then there's the other end where you're so where you're so stressed out that the work also degrades. And I imagine that that's a pretty significant problem at a company like Google that tends to hire a lot of hyperachievers. Yeah, when Patrick Prechette, the former CFO, left, he described himself as a charter member of the Insecure Overachievers Club. And again, you know, if you really care about what you're doing, it can be difficult to throttle it back. So there's this idea of just saying, yeah, as a community, this is something that we could all use some mutual support in. And I think when we talk about throttling back, there's the idea of, well, isn't that inherently bad for performance? But when we think about this over the medium and long term, it's actually a performance increaser, right? And in particular, you have to be careful about the cultural aspect. If everyone around is, is telling themselves a story that if you're always at the office, that's the avatar of the perfect employee, you begin having these social pressures, right? This isn't too much at Google explicitly. But, you know, people are there to run with the fast horses. People are there to really do amazing work. So it's also important to say it's a cultural that sustainability is also a cultural value. And changing the culture to the point that people can really get that and make that part of the way that they think about things, that's a huge challenge to take on. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think when you look at working with culture in an organization, the smart play is to look at what's already there and then, and then take advantage of it. So for instance, the Search Inside Yourself class, which is a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence class, is always has wait lists hundreds of people you know, long. In no way, shape, or form should I take credit for those, for those wait lists. There is this idea that people want to have a life that is highly effective and well-lived. So I think when you're designing and trying to influence culture, it's much less like trying to move a rock from one point to another but what are the latent flows and what are the stories people tell themselves about what's important? And then how can you apply a sideways nudge to it to impact it? So in this case, it might be giving people a vocabulary around resilience and burnout. So when they make a decision to take a day off to recharge, it's not, oh, I'm slacking. It's, hey, the condition of my nervous system is such that it's starting to degrade and I'm being snappy and I'm not enjoying myself and I'm making errors. This is the data that says we actually need to then take the pot off the burner for a second such that we can come back and, and have this sustainable performance. And, and when you think about it like that, when you present something in a way that the culture accepts of, oh, this is the smart play, right? as well as it's okay to, and then you can provide a vocabulary around this, a shared set of concepts and vocabulary that other people will then recognize because maybe a few people have interacted with these programs in classes where they go, oh yeah, yeah, good, good idea. So you're, you're really starting with teaching people the language for communicating these concepts so that they can recognize them because otherwise they don't exist. They're just this amorphous quality in the world. Yeah. And I mean, this is true 
even of our internal experience. On Reddit, there's this great term, the feels. Um, have you heard of this? Yeah. So someone will post a meme or a GIF or something that provokes an emotional reaction and because the, the comments will generally be, man, this, this really gave me the feels or this really got me in the feels. And the reason why I love this is it's such a brilliant articulation of our lack of vocabulary around our in, inner experience. It's like, I'm having a strong emotion. That's all the data I have for you now. I'll let you know if, if, if anything else comes up. And, and this is elixithemia, right? And elixithemia is a hmm. subclinical condition of being unable to describe what emotion you're feeling. So at the same time, giving this vocabulary at the organizational and the team level, also important for some degree of precision of assessing where you are at the individual level. And in particular, you know, for people that are putting themselves in high stress positions like entrepreneurs or cops, how could you possibly manage something if you can't measure it? And that includes your internal state. For example, many times when I'm angry, much less so these days, I don't realize that I'm angry. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I can't believe how much this person has this brutal email I'm about to hit send on coming to them, right? It feels like self-righteousness. It feels like a very vehement form of correctness. However, I know that if I can identify the emotion that's coming up as anger, then the warning light of perhaps park this in the draft box until tomorrow morning, or at least for an hour or two goes off. So, so yeah, the, this idea of having a vocabulary and concepts and methods around this aspect of happiness and performance is crucial. And you came to some of this also through your own mindfulness practice, didn't you? That's a much nicer way of putting it than you came to know about this stuff by screwing it up really badly and needing to do a deep study of it in order to get out of the hole. I appreciate that. Well, that, that was just the way that I phrased it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I found myself at Google, surprisingly, my background, my degrees are in anthropology and sociology with a concentration in public policy and urban affairs. And I, I sort of fell into technology. I was uh, actually an administrative assistant at a 19th consulting firm, which had the key career benefit of having health insurance while I looked for a real job. You know, the company was growing really fast and I've always loved computers. And so there was work that needed doing around system administration. So I began doing it. And that consulting firm grew from 700 people to 10,000 over the next five years. So I was actually able to become a internal IT person, then an external IT engineering consultant, and then a, a manager and then an architect, you know, basically being able to pick it up as fast as I could learn. And then during the dot-com bust, the first one in 2001, 2002, that company went away. I did some other consulting. And then in 2005, Google called me and I thought, oh, well, there's clearly been some mistake made. I'm a liberal arts graduate, self-taught engineer. But to my great surprise, they, you know, they asserted that it wasn't a mistake. And, and I went in and interviewed at Google, just completely thinking that it wouldn't, you know, that it wouldn't fly, which evidently was the right mindset to go in. I, I enjoyed the interview. I had fun. I play argued quite a bit. Yeah. And, and, and so they ended up offering me this position. So there's been this constant, pleasant surprise, but also this sense of, you heard of the term imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. You know, a little inside information, imposter syndrome, very common at Google. And so here I am, I was running the crawling and indexing site reliability engineering teams, and then also the internal data analysis, data storage and analysis. So all the interactions from all the front ends are put into a big data system. So running the production engineering portion of that. And, you know, during the period of hypergrowth, it was really intense. It was really intense. The point of like, even like wondering whether or not we would have enough resources to get through the weekend. 
the rate of growth at the data center level was so was so strong. And so I developed during this period a really deep expertise in stress management. The bad side is that it was a deep expertise in bourbon and cheeseburger-based stress management. And what a wild, wonderful ride. Really close relationships with the people that was on my team. The honor of being asked to be the manager of the team, of, of this amazing group of individuals, and then the, the increase in responsibility from there. But my motivational engine was an engine based on fear and shame avoidance. Now, the good news is this is a really powerful engine. The bad news is it requires a lot of bourbon and cheeseburgers, right, to keep the gears greased. And in particular, you know, this just begins to catch up with you. Again, an amazing wild ride, but there was this emerging thing after doing it for a few years of this isn't working. And what finally shook me from thinking this could even work was my father's illness and death. Hmm. So when you hmm. get one of those big ticket life things on top of that, you start saying, okay, this is not working. And what's amazing is for, for me, the watershed moment was attending a lecture on the neuroscience of emotion, that our internal experience is actually quite rational from the perspective of evolutionary biology, right? We are the descendants of nervous monkeys, you know, freaking out early and often has been an amazingly positive thing for us as a species. But if you work in an office environment, we have a tendency to respond to engineering challenges, interpersonal challenges, entrepreneurial challenges with the tool set that evolution gave us for dealing with bears, right? And so the good news is, is there's things that you can do about this. And you know, I'm the kid who took apart the toaster, realizing that my own internal experience was a mechanism that could be investigated and hacked, and that would lead to this intersection of more performance and more happiness. I just became entranced by it. And one of the things that, looping back finally to the origin point of your question, was mindfulness, the idea that you can change the structure and function of your brain via cognitive exercises and affective exercises. If you had come to me beforehand and said, like, you should really check out mindfulness, I'd be like, screw off, you hippie. No, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rationalist. I'm a, a agnostic. This isn't for me. But having it presented, looping back to the culture part of the conversation, having these practices presented in a way that was culturally appropriate made me think, oh, yeah, I'll give this a try because the science is interesting. And that led me to then investigate it. And that was sort of the foundation of the skill set of what was yet to come. Now, that's interesting. So the, the way that it was presented was really a critical aspect of this for you. I'm wondering, what was it about that presentation style that really made it resonate with you to the point that you felt like this was something you should explore? This speaks to two, two different things, right? One is, does it land culturally? Right Up until that point, a word association game, if you had said mindfulness, I would have said, you know, like crystals, auras, open-toed footwear, you know, this whole list of associations. Instead, it was a Stanford neuroscience professor speaking about it in terms of causality. And culturally, that really landed with me, that we are mechanisms. And then the other part of it is rigor. If you present a piece of information to me and say, because I said so, you're going to get a certain amount of credibility from me. You know, the science on this is still fairly new, so it's important not to paint it as a done deal and fully understood. But seeing, you know, reasonable research and the research around this is becoming more reasonable as we get more things like, you know, active control, decent end counts, being more specific about what kind of meditation is being studied. There's this idea of, okay, culturally, this lands with me. It, it, it doesn't trigger that this isn't for me or people like me. And then the reasonable amount of science to say, okay, it is reasonable to invest time in this. So it was, it was those two things. 
Well, that makes sense. And when you're presenting it to engineers, when you were presenting to engineers at Google, I'm curious what kind of exercises you had people go through in order to really get a sense of what mindfulness felt like. Yeah, you you imply a really important point is um, the neuroplasticity, the changes to the structure and function of your brain happens from doing it, not from discussing it, not from reading about it. And so there's this idea of how do you have someone have the felt experience of X? And X can be concentration, X can be compassion and empathy, X can be not feeling isolated. So how do you create situations that provoke this felt experience? And was this something that you led classes in? Well, you know, it's interesting, the whole notion of classes. So short answer, yes. Long answer, yes, but. (laughs) You know, I I think classes are a good way to get an in-depth experience. But, you know, this may sound funny from somebody who lived in the learning and development function for five years, is instructor-led training. I literally can be part of a team that creates an email client that can serve a billion people. I did that as part of Gmail production engineering. Putting on instructor-led training in, in, in numbers greater than five, five or 8,000, really, really difficult. I mean, there's some certain scalability points about the nickname for it is sage on a stage. They get really difficult. So I do think for the in-depth experience, instructor-led training is fantastic. But for example, Search Inside Yourself is a, the public version is two days, the Google version is two and a half days. And people were signing up for this very resource-intensive two and a half day odyssey to kick the tires to see if this is for them or not. And a certain amount of people would say, oh, this isn't what I thought it was, I'm going to drop out. What would it be like to satisfy that need with something that was highly scalable, right? And this is where where online learning comes in. Or even apps. You know, I think it's, you know, uh, an app like Headspace or 10% Happier or ones like that are fantastic because they're trivially available, right? So let's think about the population of busy people. If you want to affect change in a population of busy people whose most scarce resource is time, and the first rule set you throw down is you have to appear at these map coordinates at this time, or it's off, you sort of fall at the first hurdle. So there's this idea of of how do you actually provide this in a way where there's low friction for people to have this felt experience. So for part of that is partnering with these external companies to provide some of these apps. And part of it is providing internal, high scalable, but learning experiences that you would actually enjoy, which I think is a differentiator from the way that most online learning or, or CBTs are done. One of the reasons that I went to the notion of classes was because when you're in an environment like Google, like a large company where people are constantly working and they're focused on driving themselves forward, I think it can be very important to take them out of that context in order to present them with new ideas. I think that's a portion of it. But to me, that's also a means to an end. So I would definitely agree with you that putting yourself in a different space is super useful. And I don't want to make that a hard prerequisite for Mm -hmm. for someone getting this information. And the other thing is the whole purpose of these practices is to change the micro decisions that are made throughout the day, right? So for example, in terms of, you know, the research Google did about what makes effective teams showed that psychological safety was the number one differentiator, the the highest weighted differentiator. So if you're in a group of like 10 people in a meeting and someone says something that didn't have an intention of, of shutting someone else down, but it did, 
if there's one person in the room can be like, hey, can can we go back to that and revisit this? I saw this going on. If there's one person in 10 sort of throwing down a yellow card or or this can be saying something positive as well or introducing something positive into it, like that's where the actual change happens. That's where the culture is created. Maybe you could say that the base lattice of the crystal can be formed in the classroom. But I want the experience of someone like me who's working at this amazing place and struggling to have that change happen in the context of the day-to-day work. That's very interesting. And the way that you introduced this, I mean, you had to come up with a plan for this and then figure out how to scale it out to the entire Google community. I'm really interested in the process that you went through in making that into a reality. Yeah. So it was interesting. I I sort of use a sales or a recruiting funnel as a model and thinking that let's say that the goal of a well-being program is to have someone instantiate a behavior change that is positive for their well-being. So let's use just meditation as an example. But what works in terms of creating this this fostering, there's a couple big ticket items that are really common to most people. But there's also a really big long tail. So there's this important to leave space of people to define what their own definition of well-being is and then to do whatever works for them, right? So this can be video games, for example. I was just playing Horizon Zero Dawn last night and finding it, you know, really useful for my well-being because it's a very low-key, interesting game. Or it can be underwater basket weaving or what have you. So the idea is, is we actually want someone to do some behavior change. Now, with meditation, there's going to be a large number of people, let's say this is the mouth of the recruiting funnel who, or, or the sales funnel that, that want to kick the tires. So working through a sales funnel, if you want to make one sale, you have to probably write three contracts. In order to write three contracts, you probably have to have 20 in-person meetings. In order to have 20 in-person meetings, you probably have to have 100 phone meetings. In order to have 100 phone meetings. So there's, mm-hmm. there's all of these step-downs. So when it comes to supporting an environment of well-being, I think it doesn't make sense to apply something that's very, very resource intensive that might help someone convert from strong intention to do one of these activities, but then not following through. That is fantastic, you know, to deploy those scarce resources because the quantity of people in that situation is relatively small compared to the overall population. But at the mouth of the funnel, that's when you have these really, really broad reach, but still high quality, but probably short in time interventions. So we might say that in the case of mindfulness, that the app that's trivially available at all times and is only the meditation is only three minutes long, that really serves a huge amount of the need of which a subset of people will want to go deeper. And then the deeper for that might be this online learning. And we have developed some of these online learnings that are very narrative and very fun with lots of Easter eggs that would then draw people into doing the the mindfulness practice more. And if people then want to get even more information, then we have like a 90 minute in-person class. But in order to get a sufficient number of seats available to change the overall population, you have to think about who's doing this training. And and something that that is beautiful and existed at Google before I was there is I think something like 75 or 80 percent of classes at Google are taught by internal volunteers. Hmm. Right. So looping back to the very beginning of our conversation about imbuing a workplace with meaning, there's a lot of us who we have our day job and we love it, but there's something outside of our day job. So for example, that's really important to us and we want to help other people. 
So you create this, this environment of mutual support, of lifelong learning. And even if your day job is in sales, you might be able to help introverts, of which there are many at Google, work on public speaking via Toastmasters. Or there's a class about what's it like to be trans at Google, all the questions you wanted to ask. And so whatever, whatever your passion is, there's this ability to do this. And so for me, taking advantage of this is you can scale. Right. So in the same way that it may be too expensive to bring in an external trainer or even hire an internal staff of trainers to do the instructor led training, when it comes to doing these these classes taught by volunteers, all of a sudden you can start getting much larger numbers. And keep in mind, the class is a means to an end. So another huge part of sort of almost to the widest part of the funnel is communities of practice. You know, like you don't get fit from talking about going to the gym. You know, you don't get the cognitive and behavioral benefits of meditation without doing it. So for me, having a class in some ways, it's a means to an end. How do you actually create a supportive community to actually create these changes in real life? So, you know, thinking about this idea of a funnel, laser focused on helping people create behavior change and then providing appropriate amounts of support understanding that you want to have the resources, the, the really resource intensive stuff for people that are ready and can make good use of it. Not that you gate on it, but you just make easier stuff more available early up in the pipeline so that they can begin to understand what's going on, join these communities of practice, get energy from, in, from going into these classes that are sometimes taught by external, you know, traditional trainers, but mostly internal people who are pursuing their own passion. You can begin to see that this is a self-reinforcing, self-perpetuating model. And also, if you were to diagram this, I'm sorry then to, to put one diagram in addition to the funnel, it goes from a hub and spoke model, right, with, with the HR function at the center, where you can only scale as much as the HR function, to a full mesh, where, you know, as soon as you start doing this, the nodes and the communities of practice are going to start creating their own content and then feeding it back into the system. And in this case, it becomes a living, breathing, cultural change agent that becomes a, something that I think is quite different than a traditional training model. Now that sounds like a pattern that could work specifically at a company like Google that is open to that idea of the kind of cross-cultural, trans-hierarchical communication that is possible there. I'm wondering if you think this sort of thing might be possible at other companies where there's a, a more rigid hierarchical structure to the way things get communicated. I think so. So Tara Healy from Harvard Pilgrim Insurance put it brilliantly at a conference a few years ago. She said, your strategy depends on meeting the organization where they are. If it's a bottom-up organization, then you go with a bottom-up strategy, which I just articulated. If it's a top-down strategy, you start at the top, you know, maybe with an executive program and work down. Now, of course, they're always going to be a, um, a hybrid of these models. And, and something I really want to call out that I mentioned very quickly in passing a second ago is this idea of, you know, a wise teacher, I'm making air quotes, meets the student where they are. And this is true of organizations as well. So one of the key issues with developing one's workforce is how expensive it is to scale. So you can have an honest conversation with executives strictly at the financial level and say, this makes financial sense, right? You increase engagement and you take these huge bills, you're paying for external people and you start doing them internally. 
So you get this two for one, you know, for, for the same amount of money, you can probably quintuple the footprint of your training program. So that would be an example of, of how you would do that in a, in a more hierarchical organization or one that was maybe focused on a less nuanced description of return on investment. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned that at the wider end of the funnel, making mindfulness accessible in place, right where people are. I'm curious about these, these three minute meditations that you mentioned. Could you perhaps give us an example of how that might work? Sure. Would you like to actually, going back, echoing to the point of having the felt experience, shall we do it together? I'd love that. Yeah. So we'll just do a quick little three minute. People listening to the podcast are like, I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to be getting a little meditation. But <laughs> Everybody listening to the podcast, if you're driving, don't do this. <laughs> You know, that was a really good user focus of realizing that not everybody might be sitting in front of their computers as we are. Exactly. If you're doing something where you can kill or maim other people as a result of, of not paying attention to what you're doing, please come back to this part. So when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about cultivating, I'll use John Kabat-Zinn's description, which is fairly universal in the research of moment by moment, present time awareness with a sense of curiosity as opposed to judgment. And interestingly, one of the ways that you can do that is by training your attention and focus. So if you think of your attention, you can think of it like a spotlight. You can put your spotlight in the past, like you can imagine something cringy that happened to you in seventh grade when you were a teenager quite easily, or think about what you're going to be doing after we're done recording this podcast, right? So your spotlight can go into the past. It can go into several possible futures. It can also be having a sort of a meta conversation about what's going on right now. Like, oh, this is how I think the podcast is going. So when we talk about doing meditation, we're talking about doing a cognitive or affective exercise to take control of that spotlight and be intentional about it. So we'll just do this for about two, maybe three minutes. Okay. One of the ways that can be helpful is to allow the eyes to close, since many times visual input then triggers the spotlight to go in, in one direction or another. So we can allow the eyes to close and then we can actually point our spotlight of attention towards something that's happening in the present moment. The breath is a great one for this. It's a set of physical sensations that are with us all the time. If they're not, you have problems beyond the scope of mindfulness and meditation to address. So see if you can't just connect your awareness and attention with the physical sensations of breathing that are available to be felt. Generally, after a shockingly short amount of time, we find that our spotlight has veered off towards one thing or another. Completely fine. This is how we've evolved is for our attention to snap to things that are interesting or potentially dangerous. With a real sense of gentleness, try bringing that spotlight of attention back to the sensations of breathing. And as we do this, one of the things that becomes apparent is that there's actually quite a bit of sensation. There's the sensations in the belly of the diaphragm, sort of a bellows-like sensation. There's 
Here's the expansion and contraction of the rib cage to accommodate the inflation and deflation of the lung tissue. Then there's the area, maybe behind the sinuses, sensations available of coolness on the inhalation and warmth on the exhalation. And again, this practice is less about staying focused than it is about having a sense of awareness of where your spotlight is and then gently refocusing it over and over. Not treating the point at which we lose focus and attention as an enemy, but actually something that's interesting. When you realize your attention is wandered, it's actually a, a waking up. With that, we can then open the eyes and shift from that formal meditation practice. I'm curious, Dave, did your quality of attention shift during those two minutes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I love the metaphor of the spotlight, by the way. It's a very good way to visualize how attention moves in the, in the mind. Yeah, I find it pretty easy. And also, it's important to not take this practice and sort of beat yourself over the head with it, right? So a really common thing is when people be like, oh, I'm terrible at meditation. I'm terrible at everything. I'm just a loser, right? Think of realizing your attention has wandered as this moment of awakening, right? So this is called in the research meta-attention, attention of attention. And when you realize your attention has wandered, just logically, you're incapable of being focused if you don't realize your attention has wandered. When you're in like the, you know, your thoughts are going on their own direction, you're floating down the stream on the thoughts, and you realize, oh yeah, I was supposed to be writing an email, right, or something. So if you meet the moment at which you realize your attention has wandered with anger, right, you're not going to develop this ability of really looking forward to that, because this is the moment at which you regain control of your experience and your attention. It's true. When I started my mindfulness practice, I remember being very critical of myself whenever my mind wandered. And as I've practiced more, I've, I've become grateful for when my mind returns. And it's become part of my daily practice when I make a mistake to be grateful that I've realized that mistake instead of punishing myself for making the mistake in the first place. Right. This echoes back to, you know, my, my sharing the experience of, of trying to switch from a fear and shame avoidance engine into one that's more based on service and getting things done. And, you know, the, the thing about mindfulness or any cognitive training that involves neuroplasticity is that it's small changes done repeatedly that change the structure and function of your brain. But obviously the optimists, myself included, will talk about how you can train self-awareness and self-regulation and compassion and connection via this mechanism. But the reverse is also true, right? If you train yourself to beat yourself up for every micro malfeasance, you're doing the neuroplasticity in the opposite direction, right? To the point where it becomes automatic and habitual and, you know, that, that internal self-harshness provokes the fight or flight response, which is poisonous to us. 
and actually, you know, metaphorically poison to innovation, cooperation, you know, all these things that especially entrepreneurial endeavors require thinking, inventing new ways of doing things. You explain all of this very well. And I'm really curious how you got to the point with a background in anthropology, sociology, IT management, and engineering executive work, how you got to the point where you had realized that you could teach this and what you used to learn how to teach what you're doing. Huh, that's a really good question. You know, at the, at the root of it is my life was changed for the better dramatically via these practices. And the reason why I allowed them to change my life was that I believed in them. And in order for me to have a belief, it had to be backed up by a certain amount of cultural appropriateness, but also rigor, right? So in order for me to trust myself enough to do this, like it's always in the back of my head, like smart people join cults, like intelligence is not... <laughs> You know, intelligence is, is not a prophylactic against making terrible decisions in this domain. So part of it is in order to allow myself to do it, I really wanted to do some research. So for example, I'm currently, I work with veterans. So in order to be competent in teaching with veterans, it's important that I know as much as I can on the intellectual level about the mechanism and transmission of traumatic experience, but also on the felt experiential level. So in order to do this, in order to be to have the amount of competency I want to have for this community that I'm the vice chair of the board of a group called Veterans Path, which teaches mindfulness to veterans, and I'm also a facilitator. So I exist at two levels in the organization simultaneously. I have a deep abiding desire to not screw up the facilitation portion as well as help guide the organization. So I read a whole bunch of books. Right? I read The Body Keeps the Score, and It Didn't Start With You, and a number of studies about trauma. But then I'm also doing some work with a therapist who specializes in trauma so that I have the direct experience about it. So the virtuous circle going on is, one is I love learning. Like if it's a topic I love, I can't not be curious about it. I'm just a very curious person, autodidact by nature. But then there's also this tying of the intellectual portion with the, with the felt experience. So to put all that chain together, one is I have a pretty wholesome intention. I want to help people who are very dear to me, right? Veterans who have served our country. And then that then gives me the strength to read the books, you know, and power through them. And then also to do the work on myself. So I would say that it's this multiple layers of internalization that work. I, I would guess that I would be a fantastically terrible teacher about topics that I didn't have as much direct personal passion for. So do you feel like you self-taught teaching through reading exclusively or were there people that you learned from around this? You know, definitely people that I, that I learned from, you know, for instance, I'm a big fan of Dave Snowden from Cognitive Edge and looking at the way that he unpacks very complex theories. And this is his jam too, before he got into the complexity theory and emergent theory was the power of narrative. Mm. What do I remember? I remember the stories. I connect with the person on a personal level. There's the sense that my cultural background is respected and accommodated, right? So then you internalize that of what really made a difference in my life. And then there has to be this process of then reimagining it for yourself. There's nothing more cringy than watching someone in a leadership position, try and execute a leadership style they read a book about, <laughs> they haven't internalized and then created their own version of it. So I would say being an avid student and noting what resonated for me is what was useful in that endeavor. What have you incorporated into your life? I'm curious what your routine looks like. So at the highest level, 
I think it's about having some intentionality about how you spend your time. So you mentioned I recently retired from Google. It's not my intention to have another job or at least not a traditional job. But, you know, I'm 46, like too early to retire, retire, you know, shuffleboard's not my jam. So what's the life I want to lead? And then what's a rough portfolio or investment mix of activities that will get me that? And so my daily routine sits within this, this larger intention of how I want to be spending my time. And overall, maybe at the within the quarter granularity, I want to be spending a quarter of my time doing systemic work on the for-profit world. Right, the for-profit world wields a, wields a lot of power in our culture, and I and I really care. I care about entrepreneurs. I care about engineers. I care about factory workers. So I want to be doing twenty five percent of my time doing stuff that helps that at a systemic level. Twenty five percent doing work that is nonprofit based or social justice based or politics. You know, I think that. Right now, we're living in a very historical political time, and I want to make sure that when I look back on this, I did my part. And then the third part is coaching and teaching. So one of the things that I learned was doing all this systemic work really has this great impact, but it leaves my heart a little empty. You know, I need to be doing one-on-one work, which is, of course, anathema to scale, but I know that I need to be having this one-on-one time with people. And then a quarter of the time goofing off playing video games. So when I look at my daily or my weekly schedule, I'm actually paying attention to, for these activities, which quadrant do they fit in? And then, you know, again, over like a month, two month period, are they roughly where I want them to be? So for instance, just exiting the corporate world, there's a lot of opportunities coming my way in that corporate world. So that quarter could blow out. That 25% could easily become 60% if I'm not careful about it. So there's the the setting of the intention and then having a rough investment mix about how I want to be spending my time. For somebody who is an entrepreneur or they might want to say the classic thing is to allow daily tactical issues to overwhelm any sort of strategic thinking. So you might say, okay, I want to spend 10% of my time doing R&D and and strategic things. And then I, I pay myself first. You know, when you're trying to save money, if you pay all your bills and save what's left, that's not a great strategy for saving money. So the first thing that I do is I block out things that I that are good for me to do that I know I'll try and skitter away from because of busyness, exercise, meditation, sometimes even reading, even though I love, can get squeezed out. So I put calendar blocks to make sure that what's really important to me is attended to and that my time is paid first for these things. Then I begin to divide up the smaller blocks of time. So for instance, I I have an hour a week where I just meet with random folks that I meet that are interested in chatting with me and just want to have a nice chat. So there's time set aside for that. And then routines are really, really important. So I try and do the meditation at the same time every day. Teaching exercises, it's good to get in a routine around that. So when I'm doing teaching uh, outside of work, I'm in training to be a, a Buddhist teacher. So making sure that that's happening on a routine is really important. So it's this idea of, are you intentional with your time? And does the micro align with the macro goals? Interesting. I know one challenge that a lot of people have when they move out of a company and move into you know, one of their retirements, I'm, I'm a big fan of retire early, retire often. <laughs> but one thing that happens when people move into that is that they immediately lose track of that entire social network that they created inside of the company. I'm curious if you're doing anything to maintain that network, or if you're building an outside network, or if you already have an outside social network that is helping to keep you grounded in that way. Yeah, it's a little bit of all three. My love for my family at Google is really deep, and it would be like cutting off an arm to not be in contact with the people that are special to me. 
this is why, you know, I've, I've been back, I've been gone about two and a half months and I've already been back twice for consulting and keynotes. And, you know, the reason why, why I'm asked to come back is, is probably some degree of, of, of expertise, but it's also, it's the relationships. Like I want to be around these people and vice versa. And you, you invest in that. So having coffee with people is really important. There's the people that you miss. So I actually have a list of people that I feel a pull towards being in community with. And I make the list and I bang through it. And it's, I mean, you know, in other words, like every week when I notice that I have some time and I feel a pull towards connecting, I go to my list. And some of these people are social. Some of these people are work. And I just try and honor the pull towards that and reach out to people and say, hey, do you want to have a virtual coffee? Do you want to meet near the office? And, and of course, they're reaching out to me at, at various points. But, it, but, but I think it's important to be intentional about building friends. One of the non-obvious things that the Google Wellbeing programs do is underscore the importance of connection to other humans. And it's hard to make friends. The older you get, the more difficult it is to make friends. On top of that, it's important to have friends, to have friendships that are authentic with your needs. So a lot of times when people say you should have more con social connection because it's good for you, well, what if you're an introvert? Like, how do you successfully negotiate the creation and sustaining of friendships while being an introvert, which is as valid a way to be in the world as everything. It doesn't mean you don't need connection. It just means that it comes with the whole point of doing this is to be happy. So it's a bit of a conundrum when there's a societal expectation to go out and, and make friends. So yeah, really important to be intentional. And one of the le levels of intention you can have is, do you have a broad, huge number of acquaintances exclusively? or how many deep, close, personal friendships, of which people can only generally sustain one to three. You know, generally there's the one other person in the world for whom you have the deepest relationship. And then, you know, maybe like three to five really, really close friends. And then there's different tiers from there. Maintaining these relationships requires an investment in time and attention. So I do think it's really crucial to make sure that if one's work sphere was the majority, that it either persists post-employment, which is happening quite a bit for me, and that you sort of have some diversity in your port, in your friend portfolio. So, uh, you know. You speak the language of Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> so you've put a lot of attention into the trainings that you do, and, and in particular, how to scale them across a community like Google. I'm curious if you're also scaling them outside of the company, because you have a lot to share that a lot of people could benefit from. So one of the things what, uh, that I'm doing in post Google is joining the board of the nonprofit that was created to take the emotional intelligence classes to the world. So this is called Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, named by my friend and creator of the SIY program, Meng, who, of course, he has like the worst dad humor in the history of the universe. He called it silly. So this very august research institution, you know, and, and, and training institution is called silly. And so that's one of the main ways that we're taking these programs and then making them available to the world, either via corporations or via public programs. And when I think about what activities I'm going to do, a big portion of, of this is how can I create the biggest impact within those three quadrants, one of the four quadrants, including having fun and goofing off. So I'm investigating projects that would be high impact, high scale in each one of those and, and having a little bit of discipline around not committing to things for probably an, not committing to things for an extended amount of time. So all the projects I'm taking on with the exception of, you know, board of directors work 
are constrained to about four or eight weeks worth of work. So we can say, yeah, you know, this is working out or this doesn't work out and move on to the next thing um, if it's not. So I mentioned fan of Dave Snowden and sort of emergent systems and complexity theory. Part of the reason why this is so fascinating for me is I definitely view myself as an emergent system that what is to come will probably be nonlinear with what came before, but definitely grounded in the intention to help myself and help other people along this path of the do so at high scale. So maybe check back with me in like a year and a half, two years, and I'll, I'll give you some more detail on what that turned out to be. I'm going to want to do that, but I'm also going to want to follow you in the meantime. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this are going to want to stay in touch and follow what you've been working on. Where do you recommend people go to keep up with what you're doing? So BillDuane.com, B-I-L-L-D-U-A-N-E.com has a list of interviews that I've done and, and videos, and we'll probably be expanding it a little bit more when I have a clearer idea of what the efforts are, are going to be. But there'll, there'll be some content there. A richer source of content would be silly.org, S-I-Y-L-I.org. And I'm also working with a company called Wisdom Labs, which has uh, some amount of information on it around some of these tools and strategies. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely be putting links to all of those things in the show notes. And thank you, Bill, so much for joining us today. Yeah, my great pleasure. Thank you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.